Welcome to Distilling Craft. You're listening to episode 17, titled Rye Matey. Today we're going to be talking with Campbell Morrissey from Mother Road Brewing in Flagstaff, Arizona. Distilling Craft is brought to you by Dalkita, a group of architects and engineers who specialize in designing craft distilleries across the U.S. More information is available at our website, dalkita.com. That's D-A-L. K-I-T-A dot com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Distilling Craft. I'm Colleen Moore. Hey, just a quick thing before we start today's show. While we're hard at work lining up new interviews and producing new shows, and you are so kindly waiting on us, we're going to reissue a couple of our episodes from season one with some previously unreleased material mixed in. Campbell's going to talk with us about his experience with rye in both a distilling and now a brewing context. Later, our part-time radiogenic distiller DJ talks with us about rye mashing, plus milling and fermentation to wrap up the grain portion of our fermentation series. Campbell, welcome to Distilling Craft. Thank you for having me. How long have you been working at uh, Mother Road? Uh, I've been working at Mother Road just over two and a half years I started here in 2015 and have seen us grow from an 1800 barrel kind of very local focus to a statewide 5,000 plus barrel a year brewery um, and growing. And we're actually opening our new facility in January. Oh, very cool. You Before you got in or got back into brewing, you were working at Stranahan's for a while, right? Yes, that's correct. So most recently I was the production manager at Stranahan's, helped take them to you know, start growing the Stranahan's brand as well as uh, some of the contract bottling that we did for Proximo Spirits, our parent company. It was a really awesome experience. You know, I got to start from the ground up, kind of came in as a shift brewer and then took the next step into that production management role and got to learn a lot and hopefully contribute a lot to that company. Very cool. And then along the way, you managed to uh, pick up a master's degree in brewing, if I remember correctly. It's been a little bit since I looked at your bio. Uh, That's correct. So I got my master's of science in brewing distilling at Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh, Scotland. I did that 2012-2013 and was encouraged to do that uh, from a boss of mine working at Durango Brewing who had graduated from the same program and really spoke highly of it and obviously Getting to live in Scotland and learn about brewing and distilling was an easy choice to make. I can understand that. You might have sampled some local product at one point or another. Absolutely. And actually, I mean, truth be told, I never really drank much whiskey other than, you know, the occasional occasional Jameson shot prior to that and really didn't actually really care for it. And then kind of got exposed to the world of single malt and just totally fell in love with it. So... Got really excited about that, and then that led me to start discovering more of the American whiskey production, especially as you know the bourbon and rye whiskey boom was coming back around. So that what was available was pretty amazing, and I kind of started discovering that, and then obviously learning a lot about the process. So I ended up falling in love with distillation and whiskey in particular. So you've got an academic background. You're currently in a brewery. You've been in a brewery in the past. You've done Stranahan's. Uh, what do you kind of see as the differences and commonality between breweries and distilling and their production process, you know, obviously up until the still? Um, well, the interesting thing about distilling is that mashing and fermentation 
will differ widely based on the product you're making, based on the distillery, based on the final you know distillation process. Whereas for the most part in brewing, obviously there's some variation, but overall that mashing and warp boiling and whirlpool and fermentation is pretty standard across the board. You might ferment your lagers a little longer. Belgian styles are going to require a different little different fermentation profile. You can even kind of expand that into turbid mashing for sour beer and wild yeast production. However, it's still fairly consistent. Whereas every distillery is going to do something a little different. Um, at Strain Hands, we were brew- we were essentially brewing a beer-like wash uh, to actually replicate the original wash that was being produced at Flying Dog. So I got to learn a lot. I got to kind of have that cross crossover where some things were very brewing-like and then some things were very unique to distillation. But then you start thinking about scotch, scotch malt whiskey production, which is um, multiple pass batch louder into open washbacks versus bourbon production, which is typically uh, you know a fine ground flour mixed with water in the cereal cooker which is then all pumped into the fermentation vessel. And then that's pumped into a still. So you're working with like a thicker slurry on grain versus at <clears throat> scotch, you have a not slurry, typical wash, but very open, different yeast strains. So, I mean, and that's just scratching the surface. You know, there's what people are doing in the craft world are, is completely different. Yeah, I know that that's, that's kind of the fun part is how weird and different some, everybody gets to be. Uh, so we've been talking a, a bit about different grains, uh, and we got into a little bit of, of fruit production here on our last episode. Uh, what do you see, kind of the difference in, in distilling and then in the brewery side between using, you know, all barley or starting to use some of the adjuncts on the beer side, or doing, you know, rye and corn and that kind of stuff on the uh, whiskey side? Oh yeah. So I mean, obviously, the number one thing there is flavor profile. I mean, that's going to be the the impact of using rye versus wheat versus corn is pretty evident. I mean, you know, open up a bottle of American straight rye whiskey brewed or distilled at the same distillery as a as their equivalent straight bourbon, and those aren't even the same thing. I mean, chances are they have a really similar fermentation profile, a really similar distillation profile, and they're just using two different grains and don't even taste like the same product. So I think when it comes to flavor, I mean, that's where you're seeing a lot of differences. But then in process, those are huge differences as well. I mean, gelatinization temperatures being different, uh, viscosity being different. You know, rye is notoriously difficult to work with. A lot of the, and a lot of reason, a lot of smaller distilleries are struggling to put out as high quality rye as, you know, you're getting from Midwestern grain products or what you see in some of the bigger distilleries in Canada. I mean, they're just set up for it. You know, you have to use a ton of enzyme. You have to have a lot of specialized equipment and move that down the line. Whereas it's a little easier to get corn flour from, you know, a reputable distributor and make pretty decent uh, bourbon out of that. So I think it just takes a little more nuance. And then wheat obviously adds its own complexities. Um, I haven't had the opportunity to distill much with wheat, but I find that really interesting. And actually find uh, weeded bourbons, which are, you know, obviously it's a bourbon, so 51% corn. But a lot of that other part is made up with wheat instead of rye. And that changes a completely different flavor profile than a high rye bourbon, for instance. So you kind of can rabbit hole yourself in all all of that. And then on the brewing side, um, 
again, flavor number one, but also process is really difficult. I mean, brewing high rye beers, probably the most difficult thing we've ever done. Um, just requires a lot of extra processing, a lot of eye on that louder, you know, separation is really intense. Um, we haven't gone as high, you know, anything 20 plus percent, but I've read quite a bit about some different techniques, either using kind of a, to maintain some pressure on the mash, also using a lot of enzyme to cut down viscosity. But then again, you know, everyone's systems are going to be so different that I'm interested and also terrified to try it. Yeah, that's interesting. So you're, you're actually brewing rye beers. I, I guess I haven't run across those yet. The first question I have would be, why rye beer? Um, I, I, I get that rye adds a lot of depth of flavor on, on the whiskey side, but it seems that it might be a little intense uh, on the brewery side without that kind of still in there to knock back the flavor a little. So at Mother Road, all the beers that I've had a hand in designing and releasing, um, I'm a big fan of using adjunct, not necessarily as a dominant flavor, but as a kind of background. Um, our IPA, which is by far our bestseller, uh, we brew with wheat. Just to, you know, it's about 9% of the batch or of the mash bill. And I think it just gives it a nice rounder flavor, gives it a little more body. Um, our session IPA has about that equivalent of rye. And I think it helps set that beer apart by giving it a nice kind of spiciness on the end. Um, some people describe it as peppery. Some people even kind of pick up a little bit of menthol, but I just kind of get like a generic little, you know, hit of spice at the end. And I think it helps round out a fairly, uh, full bodied beer with a ton of tropical fruit hops. Um, we use a lot of El Dorado. So I love El Dorado because it actually tastes like Hawaiian sea fruit punch, (laughs) (laughs) but it can, it can come off as cloying. And I think that rye just helps to kind of cut through it a little bit. So again, it's not a dominant flavor and you might not even say this is a rye beer, but using rye just helps, you know, complete the palate, if you will. Yeah, that that actually makes perfect sense when we're talking, you know, less than 10%. So you're getting, you know, the flavor through. It's kind of flavor-wise the equivalent of doing, you know, a high rye bourbon, but then distilling it. So you're getting that that rye component, but it just gets knocked back. That that actually makes a ton of sense. I just I guess I don't think enough about the the beer adjuncts. I think just so often, if it's got wheat in the beer, it's a wheat beer. If it's got rye in the beer, it's a rye pale ale or whatever. I think there's, you'd be surprised how many brewers are, I'm not the only one doing it. You know, there's a lot of brewers out there who are using these adjuncts as just that. It's an adjunct. It's part of the whole picture. I think it really helps to round out flavor than just using straight barley, even of, you know, various caramelizations and flavor profiles from that. I think the different grains really help a lot. So what do you see on the the processing side uh it sounds like you guys aren't milling your own grain so uh, are you how much difference is there in how uh you gelatinize and and sacrifice or your sacrification of your rye versus your wheat versus your malt uh, what do you guys see differently in how you have to kind of treat those different grains um so we are milling ourselves um which is actually funny you bring that up because we just had a huge issue on our, uh, we just brewed our anniversary Imperial stout, which we did, uh, fittingly enough, uh, four grain. So barley, wheat, rye, and oats. Uh, we use quite a bit of malted oats in that, um, big fan of malted oats, uh, in brewing and <clears throat> we could not get it to crack, you know? So it was like, basically we're just moving through like a bunch of whole grains and there was no difference in size from, you know, the barley and rye. It's just through the malting process and the amount of husk material, I believe, you know, by weight, malted oats are almost 40% husk. Um, 
just make it significantly less friable. And we didn't account for that. And, you know, we also used a ton of flaked oats. So that seemed to really boost that up. So I'm not sure we actually got that contribution from the malted oats, but that was a real interesting learning experience, possibly having to mill those separately. Are you using a roller mill for that? Yeah. So we have a pretty simple two roller mill uh, currently. And that's one of the reasons we're excited to move up to our four roller. So we can actually get a little bit more of that control over our gross composition. And then, you know, back to when I worked at Durango Brewing, our flagship was a 50% wheat beer, you know, so 50% malted wheat in that, um, you know, no husk material. So nothing to really support that louder bed, obviously a ton of viscosity issues, a lot higher protein. Uh, so we use quite, we use about a hundred pounds of rice hulls per 15 barrel batch just to help set that louder bed. Um, you know, we're using a simple mash louder combi, pretty typical in the craft brewing industry. So no real ability for, you know, step mashing or even being able to just convert and then have that nice wide louder bed as you'd see in a, you know, more advanced, you know, dedicated vessel system. So, uh, just to circle back to the, the milling, were you, I guess it sounded like you were running all the grains through the mill simultaneously. Is that what you guys were doing? Correct. Um, just, you know, we, you know, we're able to mill in about five or six bags at a time. You know, we run it over to our hydrator and just did not account for the fact that the malted oats were going to give us trouble and never didn't think about it and <laughs> kind of regretted not. But in the end, you know, the beer came out well. We kind of, you know, adjusted by adding quite a bit of rolled oats directly into the mash um, during the mashing process to get those adequately hydrated. Um, and we got the body we were looking for. So, you know, learning experience, obviously, but <clears throat> something really interesting, you know, in the distillation world, when you're talking about processing multiple different grains, I could see that being, you know, unless you're just going straight hammer mill and turning everything into basically a flour, can be really interesting and create a lot of problems down the line if you're not, you know, really adjusting your mill per, to each grain. You know, thankfully, we're not doing malted oats very often, but definitely something we would think about if we did. Yeah, I've seen a lot of that where when you're when you switch grains, you need to readjust your rollers in order to to either handle the larger particles on the input or to end up getting a kind of a consistent output. Uh, although with just a, just a two roller mill, I'm not sure how much you can really do besides just set it where you you want the output to be and kind of hope and wait. Yeah, correct. And I mean, that's an issue, obviously, uh, comes up with rye quite a bit. Um, the kernel size tends to be quite small. Um, our supplier gets pretty plump kernels for rye, and that's been really nice because it's really allowed us to not have to make too many adjustments, but it's something we've been aware of. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with rye, it's real kind of like long and thin, mm-hmm. whereas like barley is kind of shorter and fatter and wheat's even shorter and fatter than that. So no issues milling wheat. Um, haven't had any issues milling rye current, uh, as of yet, but now that I say it, I'm sure I'm going to walk <laughs> in this week and something will go wrong. So I wanted to circle back. Uh, you said you went to uh, Harriet Watt. How valuable have you found that education to be? I know there's always a kind of a debate in the industry between experience and education. Uh, now that you've had the education, what do you, is it, has it been valuable to you in your career? What do you, how do you look back on it? Oh, without a question, it's been possibly the best decision I've ever made. Um, you know, and part of that is, you know, my educational background prior to that was I was a political science major in college and had, was going to go work in, you know, the nonprofit sector and since decided brewing was more fun, (laughs) too much stress in the nonprofit world. But, uh, 
it basically allowed me to kind of catch back up, use some of the science I did take in college, get that kind of crash course in micro and brewing chemistry, um, brewing engineering, especially, and then <clears throat> sort of develop those skills and learn a ton. But then it also allowed me to develop a network of international brewers and professors who I can look to and talk to and bounce ideas off of. And, you know, so that was huge and still is, you know, it's been over four years since I graduated, which, yeah, four and a half years since I graduated, which is crazy. And, you know, we still have a very active Facebook group of all things, but, you know, people are still posting, Hey, this happened to me. Has anyone had this issue looking for some advice or, you know, looking to change suppliers? Who do you recommend? Et cetera, et cetera. So between the actual coursework and the education and the community and network that I built, I would never change it for the world. However, I do see, you know, I'm not saying it's the only way to grow as a brewer or distiller. You know, I think one of my, you know, one of our brewers here, you know, he's a bio and micro or a bio and chemistry major at Northern Arizona university and is just a rock star and honestly is going to do more just focusing on that, on that field of study, necessarily, not necessarily going to brewing specific stuff and will come out with as much as I did. So, you know, I think if you have the educational background or the willingness to work hard and learn and finding those mentors, I think everyone has as good of a chance to make it in the brewing industry. However, I think finding a network of people um, to help out, be it, you know, from advice and work or, you know, someone's posting a new job, you know, everything is, that's been huge. And I'm just really thankful for that. Yeah. That's a great endorsement. I, I think, yeah, that's, that's really cool that you've seen kind of both sides of it and still find it valuable. So yeah, I remember uh, when you went to school, you, your dissertation was actually on rye. Is that correct? Uh, so actually my first semester project, uh, my first, my full dissertation was a different project, but, uh, Oh, okay. It was on um, basically processing rye and in the brewing and distilling industry and just kind of different techniques people are using, some of the implications of not doing it or not processing it correctly. Um, yeah, so and kind of some of the unique aspects of rye about why it's kind of a pain in the ass. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it was a really interesting project and you know, kind of enlightening to see I mean, because it is one of the coolest grains in the world because it grows a lot of places that a lot of other grains won't. Um, so high altitudes as well as high, high latitudes, colder climates, um, less nutrient so or lower nutrient soils. So it's kind of become this like, especially in Northern Europe and, you know, Northern North America has become this like grain of like the struggle and hardship, <laughs> if you will. If you think about like the images of, you know, the Eastern block and like these like dense rye loaves and despair. I think like that's also what every brewer feels like when they've overdone it with the rye. probably, but, uh, <clears throat> so that's kind of, I mean, just starting there, it's kind of been made its way into the brewing distilling industry, you know, from that, from those areas where it was the only feasible grain to use. So in every culture, what does excess grain get turned into alcohol? Of course. So I did a lot about the history as well, um, you know, in Germany, the lesser known of their beers is the Rogan beer, like a Weiss beer. It's 50% rye, um, very, very difficult to process. And there were some really cool schematics on old German breweries that specialized in Rogan beer and the amount of, uh, and obviously holding to the Reinheitsgebot, 
you know, no endogenous end or exogenous enzymes were allowed. So a lot of multi-step processing, a lot of decoction mashing was required to make that beer louderable. And then moving into like the distillation world where and now in advanced distillations, they're doing 95% rise where it's just cooked all hell. A ton of mycological based enzymes are added and then they're adding another 5% multi, but basically cook it to crap and then cool it down, add 5% malted barley for amylase activity and then can move it along the way. So <clears throat> it's obviously they figured out ways to use it, but there's no one and no historical product that ever is just like, yeah, we just chuck it in. It's fine. So, so knowing all that, you're still deciding to not only use rye normally, but you're starting to talk about high rye beers. Uh, are you crazy or just interested in trying new things? Uh, what, what, what's making you go, yeah, I want to make a, you know, a, a, more rye in my beer. Well, I decided to enter the craft brewing industry, so I'm clearly masochistic in some way. <laughs> no, I just think the the payoffs are worth it. Um, I think it's it's a flavor that you can't get from another grain. Barley can't be processed anyway to give the flavor rye does, and that's just basically and you know, and that's just using you know the basic malted rye, which is honestly pretty cheap. So you know, relative to specialty barley's, and. <clears throat> there's no hops that create that in the distillation world. There's nothing that creates that other than that, other than that grain. And I think it's so, I do think it is worth using. However, I think you have to just know what you're getting into. You know, will mother Road ever release a Rogan beer at 50% rye? I surely hope not, but it would be fun to try. <laughs> I would, but you know, we would also know that we're probably getting into, we're going to have to really process, you know, think about how we're processing it from, raw material handling as far as milling goes to our mash profile. Do we need to step mash? Do we need to add enzyme, you know, to break down those, you know, dextrins and uh, especially arubinoxylans and things that are just going to create huge viscosity issues um, and stick mashes, you know, looking at equipment, do we even have the equipment to set up for that? Um, I know a lot of people who brew high rye beers um, will actually, you know, run their rakes pretty hard during their ladder process to just keep that grain bed moving. Do you have the appropriate kettle? I've had this experience on the homebrewing side and I've actually heard of it in, uh, read it. I was actually reading an MBA thread, I think about it not too long ago. Um, but actually getting like a cooked ashtray flavor off a of rye beer and hmm. they'd actually suck through so many dextrins and proteins into their, la- into their kettle using a direct fire kettle. It was actually burning those and it, you know, they got this like smoky, not a pleasant smoke character off of it. And so, you know, <clears throat> there's some serious downstream flavor profile implications and not just difficult days on brew day. Interesting. But that said, getting those flavors is, I just think there's such an awesome flavor profile. And like I said earlier, not necessarily the dominant profile, but it just adds that extra, extra back end flavor that helps round out a lot of beers. Yeah, I, I definitely know actually talking about all the struggles makes me want to go out and give it a try. So I think I do well in the craft beer industry as well. Um, last thing I wanted to kind of talk to you about is you're in a, you've been in a fortunate position that you get to watch some companies grow. What have you seen kind of from those struggles of getting bigger? Uh, what kind of challenges come when you're, you start scaling up your operation? I mean, scaling is actually the first thing I was going to think about is um, currently right now we're in the process of opening our new facility, um, which is going to be awesome. However, like everyone else, we're super behind. 
So over the last 12 months, um, we've been contract brewing with a brewery down in Phoenix. Um, it's been a great partnership. Uh, we'll, we're on track to do about 20 to 25% of our total volume this year out of that, that brewery. Um, <clears throat> it took us almost two months per recipe to scale those recipes from a 15 barrel brew house in Flagstaff to a 15 barrel brew house in Phoenix. <laughs> so just moving equipment and changing equipment requires a lot of time. And it's, it brought in variables, you know, we didn't even think about everything from obviously liquor to grist ratio and louder and louder bed size and depth um, to heat of kettle, how many VTUs you're actually putting into your kettle. Yes, a boil is a boil, but two boils, one boil at a, a super rolling boil to another boil that's more of a simmer, you're going to have a huge different difference on uh, utilization. Then talking about fermentation profiles, um, just we found cone size or uh, cone angle. Um, most of the fermenters down there are 45 degree angle, whereas ours are all 60. And we get a significantly better hop aroma off our fermentations than they do down there. And we've had to add a significant amount more dry hops to the beers down there. So that's just, I mean, we just learned so much and that's, not, that's just scratching the surface of what we've talked about. I mean, that's not even getting into water chemistry and all that. Um, you know, cause they're all, we're using city water that we make some stock salt additions. They're using all RO water. They're trying to build up. So, so many variables there. Um, and then consistency, and obviously meeting consumer demand without being out of stock too much. So, you know, we've struggled just making enough beer, you know, trying to keep as, as quality as possible. And, you know, just on the equipment we're using now, I mean, our flagship IPA, I think taste profile wise stays very consistent. However, you know, we have issues with, you know, we're trying to keep it up, up with that haze craze and some batches are a little clearer than others. And people are like, I can't believe they're starting to filter this beer. I'm like, no, I'm sorry. Um, but that's been something that, you know, we don't really want to be known for and struggle with and are looking forward to having more capacity than we need. So we can kind of slow down a little bit, really make sure we're looking at every variable, uh, every critical control, control point is being assessed. Um, we're taking some big steps in quality from what we can do now, which is kind of the basics to, partnering with Northern Arizona University to use their spectrophotometer and their um, QPCR to really just like launch ourselves as far as consistency goes. So I think that's been possibly the best thing that we learned is that sometimes you don't need to follow that, you know, that uh, uh, roadmap that everyone does. You know, it's like you start with this stuff in your lab and then you get this and then you get this and then you get this, you know, we, we realize we have this amazing resource with this 20,000 plus student university where they're doing a ton of research and we've made the connections and now we're going to start tracking all of our, you know, all of our infection or, you know, plating samples. We're going to scrap plating in favor of PCR hmm. technology and we don't have to make a financial investment to do that. And that's a great resource. So in the, the new brewery, uh, I mean, have you decided to stick with, the, the say the shape of the fermenters from the brewery in Phoenix or are you going back to your your own size stuff so that you'll have to adjust the recipes again from a you know a large 45 back to a, a large 60 uh, what was your thought process when you when you're putting together yours 
we decided to try to keep on as far as the seller goes, we're sticking with the same tanks we have, same company and brand as we have currently. So we can at least take that variable out of it. Currently we do two to four knockouts to fill our fermenters. We're moving up to straight four, four knockouts. So we won't be changing that variable too much. Um, we'll still have the same, same amount of knockouts. We'll be able to shorten our length between cast out times, which is really nice. Um, fermentation design and ratios will be the same that we're working with now. So getting to just make that leap. The biggest one is we're going from, you know, essentially cobbled together dairy equipment to, you know, a purpose built four vessel, 20 barrel system where we'll be cranking out 80 barrels a word a day. Um, you know, this is all going to be purpose built and I'm really interested to see how obviously our grain efficiencies change, but then hop utilization and, um, you know, what that clarity is. I know, I mean, a big issue we've had with clarity is on the hot side and, you know, when you're working with that kind of equipment kind of sucks, but now that we have the right stuff, it'll be interesting to see how those hazy IPAs do on a purpose built mash tun. Uh, how about in the distilling world? Uh, I know Stranahan's was growing a lot uh, during your tenure there. Did you see any big differences in equipment sizes, anything that made a, a real impact on the, the flavor or process? Absolutely. Um, you know, and we were lucky that we just had the capacity to blend all of our wash prior to distillation, which is kind of like a really nice crutch to have um, because we ran three sixty barrel, a one twenty barrel, and a hundred and four hundred fifty barrel fermenters of you know various provenance. You know, kind of bought in stages over time. Some were some of the original stuff for the the old brewery that we bought out to put our brew house and still house down there. To the ones we bought at the end, you know, were a little different, and so. I noticed, you know, fermentation profile was obviously different in those, um, rapidity of fermentation, you know, volatile compound concentration. And thankfully we just kind of blended off and we did have the size to then even blend, you know, multiple still runs. We get blended into a barreling batch, multiple barreling batches. We get blended into a bottling batch. So we were able to use that to maintain flavor profile. Um, however, you know, if you're a small distillery, you have a few fermenters, you know, you can only do so many runs to your still, you only have so much space that can really be uh, problematic. Um, and I think that's a difference in the craft brewing world. Um, I think there's a lot more forgiveness when you're a small tap room brewery, people are just drinking at the tap room. They kind of expect a little variation, whereas that model hasn't quite translated into the distilling world where you still have to distribute, have your product on shelves or at bars and maintaining True to brand, I think, is important in both, but I think is a lot more critical early on in the distillation world. Yeah, I mean, there, there's certainly a lot of distilleries that are having success with the the single barrel batches, and every barrel is different. So, you know, if you like it, buy it now, and the next one will be good, but it'll be different good. Uh, but it's it's a little harder to represent that when you're you're not present. So, yeah, I, I definitely see where you're coming from. So, if you were gonna start your own distillery. What would you do differently? Um, I think the number one thing I would do is invest the money to be able to buy multiple stills um, or at least a setup to do run multiple kinds of distillation. Um, one of the biggest things I notice is a lot of small craft distilleries have a very distinct flavor profile that I, rec- I um, think is a result of doing whole slurry or whole grain fermentation, however you want to call it. 
and then doing single pass distillation in, you know, these smaller stills that are being offered by all the major still manufacturers. But to me, you get this like really oily, almost cookie dough character. And it's almost, it's not necessarily off-putting. It's just really weird. And it all kind of tastes really similar. Um, and I think being able to, you know, do multiple still runs, you know, akin to obviously scotch malt whiskey production or having like a beer still into a finishing still like in uh, bourbon production or running continuous distillations allows for a lot better final product and a lot more control of that final product. I think when you're trying to do everything all at once using, you know, a five to eight column reflux, I just don't think you're getting the level of control that you need to compete on the greater distillation market. So if somebody came to you and said, Hey, I've got a a limited amount of resources. uh, What should I focus them on both time and money? What, what would you say is the the most important thing to focus on? Um, I think the most important thing to focus on is one thing, you know, it's, are you going to be a whiskey production facility? Are you going to be a clear spirit production facility? And then kind of create an, a brand and production mentality around that, you know, some of the best distilleries in my opinion are the ones that make whiskey and they're really good at making whiskey. And a lot of them, you know, unfortunately that kind of sucks early on, you know, to be a straight American whiskey or minimum of three years, but they built that into their, you know, business plan. They built that into their production process. You know, obviously they're trying to forecast for releasing in three years, but the best ones are the ones that don't rush it. You know, staying away from small barrels, using 53-gallon barrels and holding on to them for three years and really relying on your processes and your expertise to make an amazing product so that investment is worth it. Just saying, I think some of the best gins come from distilleries that are focusing on making gin, Um, be it if they're making their own grain-neutral spirit or buying it um, on the open market, but they focus so much on their distillation process and botanical blend and actually when they're you know separating those botanicals out um i think that's who makes the best gin so i'm a little biased maybe because i worked at strain hands and we just made one thing but i think there's a beauty in that and there's a beauty in making one thing so where do you see the craft distilling industry going in the next five to ten years you know i don't know my finger's not on the pulse as much as it used to be on the distilling side of things but i really expect to see it go the way Brewing has gone in the last five years where we went from kind of taking market share in the distribution side, you know, be it on-premise, off-premise, shelf space at grocery stores, seeing more draft account, you know, draft handles at your chain restaurants or your sporting events, your airports, et cetera, to a move towards that point of sale, um, the taproom model. You know, I think it's amazing to see some of these more developed brewing communities or even some of the less ones, it's, you know, how many places are popping up and all they do is sell beer right out of their tap room. Uh, one, it's a real profitable, you know, proposition because your margins are so high, but I think that's where I see the distillation world going. And, you know, I've seen some really cool, you know, cocktail bars based out of distilleries, you know, they're selling bottles there or they're, you know, have a couple beers on draft too you know, that some local breweries brought in, but I think creating that community space and, you know, the so-called third place, you know, it's a really awesome place to hang out. You can have a cocktail, 
or just, you know, a glass of bourbon, whatever, and your margins are a lot higher. So if you can, if you can get butts in the seats, you can make a lot of money. Yeah. It, it also helps if you have the local regulations that let you do that. That's one of the, the fortunate things up there in Colorado. Absolutely. And I think that's, um, you know, one of the best things to have happened in the brewing industry is the, the rise of the state guilds who are really fighting for craft brewers in each state, making sure the laws are staying, you know, favorable or trying to make them more favorable. Um, Arizona's done a lot, obviously Colorado's done a lot, but I think there's only like eight guilds for distilling, you know, craft distilling guilds in the country, you know, so I would really recommend to all current and fledgling distillers to get involved with their guild or start a guild. You know, I think it's, it's going to, it is possible to make change in the distilling world. Um, just look at all the breweries who've made the change. And I think if you want those laws to be changed, you have to be active and kind of have boots on the ground at the state house to make those things happen. So as somebody who sold or made both beer and whiskey, what do you think is the, the key to getting your product on the shelf that first time or into somebody's hand the first time? Well, kind of talking about whatever we were, you know, jumping off that, um, I was reading a recent article put out by the Brewers Association that taproom sales actually can lead to more off-premise and on-premise sales, you know, through the distribution market that a lot of people who drink beer in your tap room are likely to then buy it when they see it in the, sh- um, in the trade. So just like with brewing, like, yeah, it's awesome. We can get a lot of tower station in people's hands when they come to mother road itself, they leave with such a good feeling about that. They're like, Oh yeah. Like I love that beer. Like I'm going to buy it when I see it. And I think that's going to be the same thing with, you know, distillers is like, man, I had such a great time there. The cocktail was amazing. Their whiskey is so good. Oh, you know, I see it at my grocery store, my you know favorite liquor store. I'm going to pick that up because I know it, I recognize it. And, you know, that's going to be an easy decision for me to make versus, you know, just trying to pick, pick a name off a shelf of, you know, the crowded whiskey shelf. Awesome, Campbell. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you very much. You know, this is really fun. Um, let me know if I can do it again. Today's interview is brought to you by the team of architects and engineers at Dalkita. Dalkita has been serving the craft distilling industry for over 13 years and are committed to production facilities that work. Now let's get back to the show. A special thanks to Campbell Morrissey for talking with us on our show today. Up next, our field reporter who wants to be a distiller one day and his presentation on rye mashing, milling, and fermentation to wrap up the grain portion of our fermentation series. So rye is a very important grain. You know, it's what makes high rye bourbons awesome. Uh, rye whiskey is a huge trend right now. Uh, and so figuring out how to get rye to work for you is, is crucially important. The downside is that rye is a giant pain in the butt. It has a couple of major problems. First of all, it tends to, uh, mash very thick. It also has a tendency, uh, at high concentrations of rye, more than, you know, 10, 15% to start putting out uh, acetylhyde, which is, a uh, both a carcinogen and a potential cause of hangovers. Uh, so just using large amounts of rye can make your spirit much harder to drink. Uh, the good news is it makes it spicy and peppery uh, and adds a lot of depth of flavor, and high rye bourbons are just awesome. 
There's a lot of things we can do, though, to make rye easier to, to use. Generally speaking, and we've talked about this a little bit in the wheat episode, rye is very similar to wheat. They're both considered small grains. Uh, a lot of their across-the-board properties are, are very similar. The flavors they give off are different, and how you treat them is a little bit different. But generally speaking, they're fairly close. So like wheat, rye doesn't have a husk. And this is kind of a good thing because it makes it easier to access all that wonderful starch. It is a bad thing, though, if you guys are looking to, to lotter or do anything to separate off the rye through filtration. Uh, it has a tendency to kind of gum up and be very slow uh, between creating a, a poor filter bed and then creating a very viscous wash. It, it does some fairly terrible things. So the first thing with rye is needing to mill it. Uh, not everybody mills their rye. It's certainly not required, but I would highly recommend it just because, like everything else, it, it allows you to access that starch a lot faster. We don't want to crush it too much, though. Uh, generally speaking, the best milling for rye, about 60% of your grist should pass through a 20-mesh screen. And the other 40% needs to pass through a 16, so we still want it small. There is no hole here, uh, so we can we don't have to have those big chunks like we would in, say, a barley. Once you've got it broken down, the next thing to remember, and this is kind of the, the core of the problem with rye, is that it has a lot of uh, beta-glucans in, in it. That's what makes it thick, and then once those are absorbed by the water, that's what makes the water thick. Uh, so what we need to do is deal with those beta-glucans. There's a, a handful of ways to do it. One of the most common suggestions is just use less rye. The less rye you use, the less problems you have. If you're in that 10 to 15% range, really you, you don't have a lot of problems. and You can just treat it like you would your conventional stuff. So if you're using 10 to 15% rye in your bourbon, focus on your corn, focus on your barley. If you're doing it as just an adjunct to help your wheat whiskey have a little more pepper in there, whatever. Uh, like I said, generally speaking, small amounts of rye you can kind of ignore. Once you get over that 10 to 15%, though, this is when we need to start paying attention to it. A couple different ways to do it. One of the easiest ways to do it, like I said, is use less rye. So if you're not using less rye in percentage, use less rye in total volume. You know, generally speaking, we're looking at about two pounds per gallon is a good amount of, of rye to use. So if you're doing 100% rye with enzymes, shoot for that two pounds a gallon mark. Uh, I've seen people use less than that where we're getting down into the you know, one, one and a half pounds per gallon range. Uh, really, you, you don't want to just crowd out that water. You need as much as possible to thin it out. One of the next things you can do is really focus on your beta rest. Having a, a solid beta rest during your mashing will allow you to thin out that liquid, depending on what you're making. Obviously, if you're making corn, you need to do it, you know, on the way down because that corn is going to burn up all your beta amylase. But you can also, if you're not doing corn in there, let's say you're using, let's say you're making rye whiskey, 60% rye, 40% malt, you can do it on your way up and do a, an initial beta rest and then do another one on your way back down. This will really help thin things out. We're looking somewhere in the neighborhood of 110 to 130 F for about 30 minutes will really thin things out. If you do a beta rest before your alpha rest, that 145 number, what you're going to do is you're actually going to produce smaller dextrins when that amylase is in there breaking up your starches. And those smaller dextrins will allow you to have a thinner wash than if you did the alpha first and then the beta. You're going to end up with a longer dextrin chains. Also, depending on how you're adding things, we need to look at 
what that viscosity is doing for you. It's very common to have foaming problems when you're using a lot of rye. The easiest solution, and I know a lot of people kind of get nervous about doing not only enzymes, but adding anything into their, their mashes, but add a little bit of soybean or vegetable oil into your wash. It doesn't affect the flavor, but having that kind of oily coating over the top will help break up some of your foaming issues. So first we want to attack the proteins that are causing the foam. If you just can't get it done, this is where we come back with a little bit of oil, and it'll just kind of act as an anti-foaming agent. Obviously we want to you know, pick something food safe, which is why I recommend that soybean oil. Uh, and it'll help just decrease your foaming. Uh, that also works in your still if you're having issues there. The last real thing to remember when we're mashing rye is that rye tends to have a fairly high amount of protein. And this is, again, why we're, we're having those foaming issues. But what that protein really does is it acts as a buffering agent to the pH. Uh, naturally, a rye mash is going to run about a 6 pH. If you're trying to do a souring process, you're going to need to add more acid uh, in order to drop that pH down into that 5 range. So just keep in mind if you've, you know, historically you've been making a lot of bourbon or you've been making a lot of wheat whiskeys, you're looking to add a rye, you're going to need to probably add twice as much acid as you have been in order to get that pH down to where you want it to be. If you're happy with your natural pH, don't worry about it, but just something to keep in mind. Those high proteins will act as a, a buffer. A couple more tips. When we're uh, working with rye, one of the things to look out for is temperature. So I was talking earlier about how to deal with rye and, say, corn. Uh, it is important not to go over about 160 before you add your rye, especially if you get over 160, 165. You're going to increase your chance of having dough balls form uh, when you dump that rye in. So if you are doing uh, corn first, make sure you get that temperature down solid, get it below 160. Then you can add your rye in. Uh, and you'll have a much cleaner addition. Also, there's a, a good chance that when you add your rye, it'll start foaming. And so this is where, uh, like I said, if we're doing it, we did corn first, we're on our way down, we waited to 160, we added it. Don't just dump it all in there. If you can break it up a little bit, because now we, ha we don't have that beta in there to help us break up the foam through the enzyme reaction. So add the rye slowly, let, let everything kind of work itself out and that'll help you so you're not seeing the foaming that way. Are you interested in filing a report with us? Well, we're actively seeking professionals to give us the lowdown on the technical aspects of distillery operations for our listeners. Contact us via our website with your pitch. Do you have feedback on this show? Well, send us an email to distillingcraft at dalkita.com. Of course, if you want to find out more about this specific episode, go to our show notes on our webpage. That's dalkita.com slash show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed by Jason Shaw and is used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. And finally, a special thanks to the Dalkita team behind this production and the man that puts it all together, our sound editor, Daniel Phillips of Zero Crossing Productions. Until next time, stay safe out there. I'm Colleen Moore. Dalkita is committed to getting intelligent and quality design solutions out of the craft distilling industry. Check them out at their website, dalkita.com. That's D-A-L-K-I-T-A dot com. Until next time, this has been Distilling Craft.
Cheers. 